it's really about a duty and an obligation that we feel and some of that's love you know but it's a duty and an obligation to be the voice for people who no longer have it and to correct history that's been incorrectly written and postulated and it's just our duty i don't hope for years i guess i did suppose he might come home alive uh there was that possibility i do believe he was taken prisoner but then that definitely changed to i hope he is in peace and i hope they are all in peace wherever they may be and that goes for the missing in all wars so um i think it, it is just up to us to carry the torch for them and to correct the wrongs the misinformation that is in abundance on the web now um saying that this case is resolved so um yeah it's i think we will continue to fight this gentleman's name up is Dr. Henry Kissinger. Uh, I, I would like to think that that he may be getting wind of this podcast, but I'd like to, you know, speak to Dr. Kissinger about what he knew about Baron 52, because it was on him to get that peace treaty signed, which he did. It was on him to get Nixon out of Vietnam. And when Baron 52 was shot down, Dr. Kissinger, in my opinion, and I think anybody else might agree, he had a problem on his hands. And it's called Baron 52. And a message that said four prisoners were taken, were taken uh, within five and a half hours uh, after Baron 52 went down. That's very significant. I have not heard anybody that has talked to Dr. Kissinger about that incident. And he's still alive today, as we all know. Yeah, I queried the office, but I he re refused to respond but it's clear he was involved because of the state department message that went 
from Washington to Vientiane to the to our embassy there in Laos, ordering them not to bring up the names of the crew of Baron 52 to the path at Lao because they are KIA. Uh, so he he's not going to sign off on that message, and he sure as heck saw it because you don't you don't put a message out like that without Kissinger taking a look at it and saying, okay, yeah, we got to do this. In fact, he probably told him to do that, to send that message out. He responded, so I don't know. And they didn't want the peace accords disrupted. It had been disrupted back in December. You know, Kissinger back then claimed peace is at hand, and the North Vietnamese decided, well, maybe not. So then we had the Christmas conference, okay? And that, that message also instructed... Oh, he didn't want that to happen again because... You know, the POWs were due back in a week. So it all fits. And the other thing I think is interesting is we bring all this up and DPAA never even talks about it. They don't even indicate that it could possibly have anything to do with this. And yet it's it's all part of the picture and you have to address it. And it's clear that that's what happened. They just blew them off for that period of time. It, uh, communicate to the... American ambassador in Laos also said you are to ensure that any of these crew members by name are also not on Red Cross POW lists. Yeah, yeah, the Red Cross. They too. even went to the extent of ensuring that there was no list with any crew member names from Baron 52 to include the Red Cross list. That's how all encompassing they were. And it, it seems like they went the extra mile, I shouldn't use these words, to cover their tracks when they should have gone the extra mile to pursue survival facts and survival evidence. They put more effort into sending messages to say these POWs are not POWs when they had nothing to substantiate that. That's my assertion. Whether people are going to point the finger at me saying, you shouldn't be making those assertions. If you were me, and if you know what I know, and they had the documentation that we all possess and we know exists, you would change your tune. Well, you know, as I listened to all of this, I mean, as some of uh, what everybody has brought up is what I was going to say. Um, and as this is the 50th anniversary of the signing of the peace accords, um, you know, I think it's really important, um, you know, I was really dismayed that other than you three and um, another gentleman who had written a very nice article commemorating the 50th anniversary in an Air Force uh, uh, journal, other than, you know, you know, Ralph and Heather have articles about this, there was virtually no mention in the news about this very momentous occasion or and you know supposedly the ending of our involvement in the war and i was really disheartened about that i think we all were and they and people ask me if i ever bring this up why would you care for so long you know like what do you want what do you want to why do you want somebody to do about it now and um i just want to say that i think you know, I'd like everyone to reflect on if this had happened to a loved one of theirs, um, that they were treated so dishonorably and really just discarded 
they were condemned to an indefinite, you know, um, future as prisoners in hostile hands. Um, you know, what would they do? I don't think it's about my ambiguous grief. You know, people sometimes I think sort of think that I get that, you know, response. It's really about a duty and an obligation that we feel. And some of that's love, you know, but it's a duty and an obligation to be the voice for people who no longer have it and to correct history that's been incorrectly written and postulated. And it's just our duty. I don't hope for years, I guess I did suppose he might come home alive. Uh, there was that possibility. I do believe he was taken prisoner. But then that definitely changed to I hope he is in peace. And I hope they are all in peace wherever they may be. And that goes for the missing in all wars. So um, I think it, it is just up to us to carry the torch for them and to correct the wrongs, the misinformation that is in abundance on the web now, um, saying that this case is resolved. So um, yeah, it's, I think we will continue to fight for Joe and for all of those. And you know, the three, the others missing from Baron 52 and I thank you, John Bear, for um, you know fighting uh, to help resolve cases of all POWs and MIAs. Everybody here, um, and I guess that's it. Um, well said. Well, Ralph, I appreciate you coming on and talking to us about uh, your research into the crash, and and uh, uh, you know it's amazing how nobody really looked at this before in in depth to see exactly how Baron 52 did uh, come down and that, that, that there was survivability uh, to the crash. Yeah, what's interesting is Schofield mentioned that in the oral history interview. I don't have his transcript right in front of me, but he mentioned that cargo door and he said even the, I'm not sure how it's all put together, but he even said the top side of that cargo door is missing. And if it, and if, uh, if they hadn't jettisoned that door that top piece would still be there. I just watched the the interview with the uh, that you put on the uh, that you posted on YouTube. Yes, sir. And uh, I found that very interesting, very enlightening. And I I could only tell you this: I remember very well standing in front of Colonel Humphreys and telling him that we had information that indicated that our four guys were still alive and that I would be glad to show it to him if he would get a top secret SCI clearance. And he said, I had one, but I don't have it now and I don't want one. And I said, well, at least come into the PI area uh, here in, in your intel shop and let me show you where this airplane, uh, how it landed and, and what happened because I'm the one that found that, that crash site and I, I told him that airplane came in and bounced and lost some of the and I didn't know whether it was the wing or what it was I thought it was 
the tail up there on the hill, and then it flipped and came down upside down. And it it did not come in nose first. And he said, that airplane, I've flown them, and once they start spinning, nobody's going to get out. And I said, Colonel, that was not spinning. It came in straight. The front enders were still flying that airplane when it came in. And uh, he said, nope. I said, uh, there is no way that they were KIA at that site. He he absolutely refused to to listen to me there. And then later, my boss went into him and talked to him about what was what we had seen and what we thought was going on. Uh, I got a phone call at my quarters and said, "Come on out, we need you here." And so I went out and and uh, was there with my guys. Uh, as we went through these first few hours. Uh, The other thing that is important to know is that when Colonel Humphreys declared them uh, KIA, I had gone in to talk to him and begged him not to to, uh, call them KIA but to leave them MIA. And he said, I have to, I'm going to declare them KIA. But Colonel Humphreys was a attack fighter. Uh, He flew F-4s. And I will just tell you this about him. He wanted to be the last combat mission out of Vietnam. And so he stayed uh, he was flying an F-4 at the time, and he stayed on a on a tanker until he could be the last one out. And as he landed at Ubon, we were taking off for another combat mission. So that's just the, the attitude that he had. Uh, he did not like us. We did not belong to him. We belonged to uh, security service from San Antonio. The other thing is that shortly after I returned to the States, uh, I I was attending a a meeting up at no such agency. Uh, At the time, we couldn't refer to them, but I was was up there for a a training, a week-long training, and I got a call that Bob DeStat wanted to talk to me. We, We made arrangements for me to go down and talk to Bob. And I talked to him and told him why, and this was, we were, we were able to talk at the SCI level. And when I got through telling him what I knew, he said, you need to shut up about that. He said, all you're doing is giving the families hope that their, their sons got out alive. And uh, they did not. And you need to be quiet about it because all all you're doing is giving them hope. And then he, he kind of put a little bit of pressure on me to uh, to just not say anything anymore. And so for quite a few, for several years, I didn't. Then later on, Ron Schofield 
uh, came to the the headquarters at Kelly Air Force Base, and he worked in the same office as I did, and we were able to discuss at length what all happened. And as we discussed, I told him that I noted that the that the cargo door was not there. And he thought for a moment, and he said, you're absolutely right. That cargo door was not there. I looked for it. I did not see it. If it had been there, it would have popped open on the ground. It was open before that airplane hit the ground. When I would fly as an observer, because that's what I did as the operations officer, uh, that I was looking at the parachute uh, spare, uh, or where we kept the, the chest pack parachute, the extras, and they were just right straight ahead of me. Uh, and there were times when we would have five or six extra parachutes in that airplane. I don't know how many they had that night. There were there were often five or six across there. And I wore a, I wore a parachute uh, or a chest pack and put in there. Now, let me tell you this about our guys. Some of them wore backpacks, parachutes, and some of them wore chest packs. And if they wore a chest pack, their parachute, especially if they were taking fire, they reported they had been taking fire. Uh, it would have they would have put their chest pack right next to their foot. So all they had to do was to swing it on, clip it, and they were out that door. I know that they could get, they could get out of that door in a minute and a half because I timed them. Joe, we call him Kiwi. Uh, Kiwi and Todd Melton were part of our Stanival team, and they they were the ones who taught everybody else and made sure everybody else was qualified. And those guys could be out of there in just a fraction of a minute. Up in front where, uh, I think it was Todd set up front, we had a, a briefcase full of classified material. It was classified secret and above. And it was information concerning the communications that were taking place uh, and had been taking place in in Vietnam and Laos. That information was very, very necessary to identify what units were where in, in Laos and Vietnam. That was the main extent of what needed to be destroyed. When when Ron Schofield went in, Ron went in, They had he had no previous experience going in. The PJs that went in with him, there were two of them, and those three did not have any previous experience looking at a, a crash site. Ron's job was to look and make sure that that bag was gone and burned, or that it was retrieved, and that anything else could be done. We flew sanitized, means that down in our 
in our pants leg, we might have our wallet. We might have just an ID card. I always took off my wedding ring because that, that had been mentioned to us in survival school. The opportunities to get out of that airplane, if it were flying straight and level, and which I think it was before it hit, if it had been taking, it was taking uh, flak, and those guys in the back could very easily have gone out just one, two, three, and landed all together. They could have been picked up. They could have been picked up very easily there, rather than going on in to go in with the airplane. We we practiced uh, evacuating that airplane. The the pilot had a had a bell that he would ring, and when he rang that bell, it meant get out of the airplane now, uh, and that's what we listened for. And it didn't matter what we were doing, we would get out of that airplane. Uh, the first person that would have off the the door would have been Dale Brandenburg, because he was he was sitting at the very back, right close to the parachutes, and. Uh, he would have been given the responsibility to pop the door and and just kick it out. Here's something that nobody has mentioned, and I don't know if I should or not, but it was because it was it was classified in, at a SCI level back in those days. And I know all that stuff's been changed, but. Within five days after them bailing out, or after the, the crash site, the Vietnamese and the Laotians changed their entire communications system, plans, names, and things like that, which totally messed up that, that bag that we had. When I talked to Ron about that, uh, he said, it had never happened before during all the time he was in, in Vietnam and uh, Thailand, uh, which tells me that they didn't know how successful we were until uh, our guys got caught. And it's very likely that one of them may have, may have talked, but it, it changed immediately. Just almost overnight. Yeah, I, uh, let's I, see. I read something about that too. It's similar to that, where they had changed. Uh, well, they changed like like the. Uh, I think they were referred to as bin trans, bin trams. Is that correct? I have no clue. I don't speak Vietnamese. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> they referenced the logistical areas there in Laos as bin trams, like uh, yeah. bin tram forty four thirty eight you know another yeah. and i you know the crash site where the crash site was located north of charvain i think is how you pronounce it yeah um it was just north yeah. of there that was in the bintran uh 38 logistical area and i found this uh yeah. a cia document with the map of of where those units were located and in the intercept it had said that they had captured four air pirates they were en route from 44 right. 
and I I had that information back in the in the day, and I wanted to share it with Colonel Humphreys, but he would not get an SCI clearance, even even asked for a a waiver or a a one time uh, one time uh, blessing to get it. And I was not happy with him. He was not happy with us. Uh, and uh, we we had a very uh, touch-and-go relationship ever after that. Uh, and I was there till, till December of 73. Can I take you back to this reference sure. to 44? Um, just real quick, since yes. you, you know the area. Um, just west of Charvain, I found in the CIA document. Charvain. We pronounce Charvain. 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 Okay. Just west of there, um, the Bintran is located as the Bintran 44. And I'm almost thinking, right. I'm almost thinking that was the reference to 44 that was in the intercept. Very likely. Because that would have put very likely. Because you know, that's just southwest of of where the crash site's located, and if they did possibly yeah. parachute out, they would have been located somewhere in that area. Absolutely, and I I insisted for well until Bob Destat told me to shut up. I had verb, you know, I had been vocal about it that they had gotten out. Uh, then I didn't. I kept it quiet until Ron came and talked to us and or came and worked for me. And we were able to compare notes and because he was in a different unit than I was. I was I was the debt three operations officer and then the debt three commander. And he was at, up at the up at the sixty nine ninety fourth squadron. Uh-huh. Did, and and, and I found also in some documents that Bob Destott did the same thing to to Chief Schofield and pulled him aside as Not well. Not only that, he told him that he was a liar and that he, he Ron Schofield, was telling lies to Destott. I lost all, all respect and his credibility is zero as far as I'm concerned. He tried to spin everything to his way of thinking. If he made up his mind, that's the way it was, no matter what. I was back up at NSA for several times, well, until I retired as a lieutenant colonel. So, and I was a captain back in those days when he when he was pressuring me. This concludes episode two of the Baron 52 MIA mystery. Please join us next week for episode three with special guest, former deputy secretary of defense office of the POW MIA, Dr. Roger Shields. Thank you for listening.
prisoners of war and am I Flies in chains.